0: Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, host of this show and executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people in present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature interviews, stories, poetry, and author-narrated essays exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Alongside our Shifting Landscapes exhibition, held in London last December, we held a series of conversations with the exhibition's artists and emergence contributors who explored the myriad ways we are deeply entangled with our changing Earth. This week's podcast shares one of these conversations, where I was joined by renowned mycologist and author Merlin Sheldrake and Marshmallow Laser Feast creative director Barney Steele who was one of the creatives behind the exhibition's large-scale installation, Breathing with the Forest, to discuss the mycelial webs that infiltrate and sustain our landscapes. Embracing the mystery and wonder of fungi as a means of deconstructing our Western philosophies around the self, the nature of intelligence, and the possibilities within community, we explored how the relational phenomenon of fungi could soften the imagined boundaries between our bodies and the great biosphere. I'm very excited for this afternoon's conversation. It's the first time I've met Merlin. And uh, this, I think, is going to be a special conversation where we bring together mycelial explorations in the physical and digital realms. I'm going to introduce um, Merlin first, although I think many of you know him and his work rather well. he is oh this is smudge who is joining as well this is Barney's mm-hmm. Barney's pup who likes the limelight <laughs> <laughs> Merlin is renowned in the world of fungi a mycologist and author with a PhD in tropical ecology, his work ranges from fungal biology to the history of Amazonian ethnobotany. His New York Times best-selling book, Entangled Life: How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures, won the Royal Society Science Book Prize and the Wainwright Prize. Welcome, Merlin. Barney Steele is one of the founders and directors of the experiential art collective Marshmallow Laser Feast, whose large-scale installation is premiering as part of this exhibition. Perhaps many of you have been upstairs and seen this work. Barney and Marshmallow Laser Feast's work has been presented at Sundance Film Festival, Tribeca Film Festival, South by Southwest Film Festival, and exhibited at esteemed institutions and galleries worldwide, including ACMI, The Barbican, the Saatchi Gallery, Phi Center, DDB Seoul, Next Museum, and the Nobel Prize Museum, among many others. Welcome, Barney. Thank you. <laughs> Both of your work is deeply entwined with mycelial webs, and expresses how crucial these mycelial networks are to the ecosystems and landscapes we inhabit and explore how fungi challenge our traditional conceptions of individuality, intelligence, and invite us to see and experience the myriad connections present in the more than human world. And I'd like to start our conversation by speaking about science and the arts. Because both of your work bridges science and the arts, and each in its own way challenges the old Western scientific practice as being a detached inquiry where what is studied or explored is often reduced, catalogued, and systematized. And Merlin, in Entangled Life, you write that science isn't an exercise in cold-blooded rationality, that scientists are and have always been emotional, creative, intuitive, whole human beings. Something that is traditionally more relegated to the arts rather than science. And I'm wondering, If you could both speak to how consciously bringing emotion and awe and human response into acts of inquiry can open us to new ways of understanding the living world and in particular the world of fungi
1: i can uh, kick things off okay so um photosynthesis i guess uh that's a good place to start it needs a rebrand it's uh it's traditionally quite boring learning about it black and white images Equations, But if you think about maybe being a water molecule and starting as a cloud, falling as a raindrop, getting sucked through the roots of a tree to arrive through this sort of greening, branching um, leaf structure. And you could use electron microscope scans of a leaf so that it's got the detail of St Paul's Cathedral. And as you sort of glide towards photons smearing into probability waves before all that energy zaps you and splits you in half you could imagine that the the experience of that would be more in line with um, an encounter with God, like the source of energy that flows through the food web. In a way, you can think of uh, sunlight as weaving the web of life via this process. And so I think where we're really engaging is the, the, you know, what what would the experience of it be like? In the same way to try and describe the flavor of an apple with words, falls so far short of the sensation, the richness of the sensation. So I think as sort of technology evolves to engage multiple senses, where we operate with immersive experience is, is really trying to find that sweet spot of the awe and wonder at the experience of the observation. And obviously that exists beyond the limits of our senses. So that's why we collaborate with different scientists who are able to peer into these dark corners, into the wood wide web and 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 shed light in those areas, which always, I think, to me, it's like the essence of awe and wonder, you know, the the stories that come out of that are beyond imagination a lot of the time. And I think that's what sort of drives our work.
2: Thanks, Barney. Thanks, Emmanuel. Thanks all for coming and for waiting so patiently. Uh, I think this is such an important question. And what we call the sciences and what we call the arts both, in my mind, derive from faculties of imagination, of curiosity, of wonder, um, and of a sense of felt relationship, um, uh, both with the living world around us, and also with our own abilities to meaningfully experience that world. We think of these two things as belonging in entirely different departments of human life. Um, And I think this division is based on a centuries-old bifurcation of the world into primary quantities, those things we can measure, those things we can understand through uh, measurement and calculation, and secondary qualities, which are feeling-based things, feelings which aren't things, of course, feelings like uh, a flavor of something, the color of something, the cessation of cold water over your skin. And the modern sciences arose uh, out of this bifurcation um, and in, taking on as its job the primary quantities, those things we could measure, bracketing off the secondary qualities, those things we could feel, not because they didn't exist or any less uh, important, although they were called secondary qualities, um, but because those were things that fell into the realm of um, the arts, you know, the, 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 those, those um, areas of human life that dealt with uh, the feeling matters, the matters of feeling and knowing and, um, and experiencing. And so this bifurcation has um, created, I think, all sorts of confusing boundaries that we stumble over, mistaking them for natural features of our minds, when in fact, no, as you say, uh, and as I said, and as I really do feel that scientists are and have always been whole, intuitive, imaginative human beings, wrestling to uh, make sense of a world that was not made to be catalogued or systematized, Um, And so I think we'd have a lot more fun if we could dispel this delusion that that the arts and the sciences belong in entirely different departments of human life, because I don't think that's true. And I think we all uh, live in uh, what we might call the sciences and all live in what we might call the arts in different kind of fluid ways all the time, just to be a living, functioning human. So um, I'm excited to see uh, the places where these boundaries wear thin, uh, revealing their fragile underpinnings, Um, and excited for all sorts of practices and systems and institutions and events and parties where we can start to um, explore the the common source of of these explorations, which I do think comes from a wonder, uh, an awe, uh, a curiosity uh, and a felt sense of of relationship. Mm.
0: You spoke about separation as perhaps one of the root causes behind these divisions, you know, both between the science and the arts, but it runs deeper. You know, perhaps that's the root cause behind many of the environmental challenges we're dealing with, is this separation where we no longer view ourselves as part of the living world around us, and science has played a part in that, and especially Western-based scientific models. Uh, And this exhibition is very much focused on the entanglement that we actually have with the biosphere, and reminding us of that. And, Merlin, you've written extensively about the ways, the myriad ways that fungi is completely entwined with the existence of all life. And fungi really being an example of many other forms of life. Um, and how we humans uh, are, are, are so connected through this lens that the mycelial web offers us. And Barney, this kind of entanglement is something that Marshmallow Laser Feast has really explored. I guess since the beginning. Uh, of your work, uh, creating work that brings us into recognition of our dependency on and interaction with the more than human world. Uh, And as I said, this entanglement is really a central theme in this uh, exhibition, and I'm I'm curious to hear both your thoughts on the importance of emphasizing this entanglement as a response to the immense ecological uh, destruction that we're experiencing.
2: I think about the the ways that um, the modern sciences are now um, talking much more about the relational aspect of the living world, that the world is made up not so much of individuals, but of relationships between entities, uh, which themselves are bundles of relationship, like you yourself uh, are a planet with regard to the legion of um, microorganisms that live in and on you and without which you couldn't do what you do. many of those bacteria might also have bacteria inside them, uh, and viruses inside them, and larger viruses might have smaller viruses inside them, and onwards and downwards. And so um, the idea that this is a relational um, phenomenon is uh, is thankfully receiving more attention now. And um, through the careful work uh, and um, astonishing vision of a number of, of scientists over the last um, couple of hundred years. And yet this is not a new idea. This is really modern science catching up with what is a very, very old idea among humans mm-hmm. that we live in an anima- live in a living world, we are alive in a living world, um, made up of intimate reciprocal dependence. Um, so I feel like this is it feels like more remembering um, that's going on uh, in the modern scientist than a discovering um, and about time too. And, and, and it's um, very exciting to see how this unfolds. And I think one of the things which is which is always um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is what is the what comes first the entities doing the relating or the relationship between the entities and I do think it's a chicken and egg question um, but I also think it's a fun chicken and egg question <laughs> um, uh, not the chicken and egg questions I, I like chicken and egg questions <laughs> some of my best friends are chicken and egg questions um, but um, so. Um, what I mean by this is that if we think about the relationships between the entities doing the relating, um, rather than the entities doing relating, then we end up in a different place. For example, when you draw, traditionally, you might draw a schematic illustration of um, a plant relating with a fungus. And you might draw the plant and the fungus and a sort of dotted line between them to represent their relationship. And this presumes that the plant and the fungus could independently exist without each other. Uh, but in fact, the relationship between these two organisms over hundreds of millions of years has created what we now call the plant and the fungus. They exist because they have helped make each other. And so actually, it's, uh, there's a picture by the artist M.C. Escher of um, a hand drawing another hand, which is at the same time drawing the original hand. I don't know if you've seen this, so a wonderful image. Um, and I think it, that that's, for me, a very helpful way to think about these entanglements because it's this co-creative a relational space where all the partners involved are helping to build the other um, and that changes the way that I understand relationship and entanglement because it comes less about a series of dotted lines between individual entities uh, but it becomes a kind of seething relational space where um, like, a, like a fabric that's uh, living and, and growing and that's why mycelium is a helpful metaphor for me to understand it.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, it's hard to follow that jibber-jabber. <laughs> <Ooh>. Okay. <clears throat> um, so I was thinking with... A lot of our work is focused on the experience that connects the experience, the space between things, the relationship between things. And part of that is thinking about how maybe language creates a framework where the world becomes objectified so you can point at a tree and... And, and that suddenly becomes a framework through which you experience and see a tree. But then when you look at it more deeply, you realise it's a web of relationships. So the, the classic is that the uh, you don't get flowers without pollinators. So, you know, the pollinator is an extension of a process and they're woven into dependency. And so it's interesting to think about um, the full glory of what it is to be a human and everything that we can sense excludes a huge... Um, portion of what could be described as reality and I think that um, scientific observation is is able to draw light and and reveal these relationships and one in particular that we focus on a lot is breath. So that, I mean, one way we could do this, yeah, maybe we should all close our eyes for a moment and just take a deep breath in and out. So just keep breathing deeply And now imagine you can see a tree in front of you, but the oxygen has been made visible. And as you're breathing in, you can see it leaving the leaves of the tree and just passing your nostrils and mouth. And it's filling up your lungs, which also look like a tree. Imagine those particles as blue. In fact, you can can sort of lean your chin forward and imagine you can see those blue particles filling up your lungs and they're hitting the bloodstream. It's coming out about three feet a second up into the brain. And now if you hold up your hand in front of your face, keeping your eyes shut, just imagine that you can see those blue particles branching through your vascular structure. And then they start to diffuse like river estuaries, eventually arriving at every cell within the body. And so to to think about that, it completely weaves you into relationship with the plant kingdom. And, and the photosynthesizers um, you can open your eyes again now and so that by, by simply making that visible, um, it questions the boundaries of where you begin and end and it, it weaves you into, into a relationship that experientially is very different it creates a very different intuitive understanding that doesn't require language or the framework of, of science but and yet you can use scientific, Techniques to observe that make it real and also that the scientific understanding is what tells us that story in the first place So I think um, in that sense science could be seen as a way of revealing relationships and deepening our Connection to reality and that's the way the way I see it mm-hmm.
0: Marilyn you spoke about remembering that that these models have existed before you know, whether that traditional ecological knowledge or perhaps just something primordial that is within us that needs to get revealed and has been covered over by hundreds and thousands, really thousands of years of a certain modernization that took us out of a space of relationship. And, and, I, and I wanted to speak to you both about ways of dismantling uh, the way we conceptualize self and the individual because that's present in both of your work and, I mean, what you just offered, Barney, was perhaps a a simple exercise to begin that process. And, um, you know, I've actually heard you in a previous conversation say, where do you end and begin when the sunlight is under your skin? And you just offered an example of that in relationship to how we breathe in relationship to a tree. Um, but I found what you just offered to be a fantastic prompt for softening the illusory borders we often place around the self and opening the mind to the ways we are porous and entangled with the living world. And mycelial webs teach us this too, that no self is bounded, that every organism, including us, is deeply enmeshed. And Merlin, you've, you've talked a lot about this and particularly the fact that our bodies are in themselves part of communities. Whether that be communities of microbes inside our bodies or communities of trees providing us oxygen outside our bodies, as Barney just illustrated, and trying to locate the borders of the self within this is actually quite a bizarre thing to do because how can we truly be an individual when we are in fact a walking ecosystem? So I wonder if you could speak to this, perhaps starting with you, Merlin. Yeah, it's, um,
2: I find it as a zone of, of deeply healthy confusion. I feel like if I'm not confused <laughs> by that question then I'm missing something um, and probably in my most pointy-minded Grumpy, um, sort of snappy like, state in which I shouldn't be around anybody. I I, I, I feel unconfused by that question. It's almost like uh, an indication that something's out of whack. If I'm uh, if I think that question is straightforward, if I think that the boundaries of myself are, are evident, um, then then I'm missing something. Um, but also to 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 speak up for individuality. I mean, there there are lots of really important things about um, our sense as individuals. so much of the um, of the so many of the noble, just causes that have been fought for, um, uh, fought for with great difficulty over the last um, few hundred years, um, have been to do with I think issues like the self determination of individuals um, to make of individual humans to make um, certain choices about their life to uh, to not be Um, despotically ruled over um, by others. So I feel like there's a lot of um, power in this concept of the individual in human life and culture that we we definitely, um, well, I certainly value um, and think plays a very important part in the way that we build togetherness. That being said, um, it is, I feel, a concept which has led us into lots of trouble as well. Um, in that it likes to imagine ourselves as neatly separable. Um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a funny one to, to live in that balance between, well, okay, um, we need this concept somehow, uh, and yet where, where does our faith in this concept lead us into trouble? And um, so when you're looking from a biological point of view at the living world, it becomes clear that the concept of the individual isn't so much a natural fact but rather a category that depends on your point of view. If you're looking inside your body as a, if you're a surgeon performing an organ transplant, then you could see very clearly that this heart or this liver or this kidney is a bounded organ that can be transplanted from one organism to another. Uh, And that's an essential part of, of that perspective as a surgeon in that moment, and yet, if you stand back, you see. Well, of course, this kidney can't function without the physiological connectivity of the body. It is uh, made up of cells which are produced in a developmental process from a fertilized egg, um, and that can't be thought of as separate from um, the 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 process of, of development that has led to this organism in the first place. So, that's what I mean about what what, what point of view you're you're taking. Um, so then, I think that leads us into some 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 fun places when we try to understand. Um, the living world and the ways that we, um, as ways that we create categories and, uh, and boundaries because um, lots of the boundaries and categories that we make are revealed to be quite fragile, uh, quite, quite brittle, fragile categories. They're boundaries that It's very hard to police a boundary that you can't locate. So lots of these boundaries have to be arbitrarily located in order to be policed. Uh, and a lot of this uh, opera of human life gets played out along these edges. And so I, I value the way that the biological perspective uh, and this perhaps more intuitive perspective um, mm. can lead us to, to question those categories. I think they can lead us to a uh, healthier places. But also to, the, um, many, there are many ways to, to, to experience this sense of boundedlessness. I think that the mystical experiences which can occur for all sorts prompted and unprompted, Um, and occur in all sorts of ways for humans um, are often as far as I understand are characterized by a a sense of loss of of a a, your usual sense of self of a sense of a becoming more continuous with the universe at large Um, and yet it'd be very difficult to live one's life in a permanent state of mystical experience I would have trouble getting a train here Uh, to speak to you who did have trouble getting the train here merlin (laughs) so anyway just to speak up for both sides and to think, i think of them as this dynamic a dynamic dance that pushing and pulling uh, and 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 i like that feeling of pushing and pulling and i feel like in that dynamic place um there is some balance which can lead to to health um
1: yeah i was thinking it's funny actually listening to merlin talk because um we've been friends for a while and i've been sort of mining merlin's wonderful jibber jab for a long time and it's been a real inspiration for the projects that we make and so sort of as an artist i find great inspiration in in these kind of collaborations because it's those ideas that then we're looking to maybe reveal experientially um i think one one thing that's been coming up in fact merlin um, introduced me to Stefan harding and he goes uh when you step outside your house, when you step outside your house you're you're stepping into the body of the earth, you know you, you're existing inside and then suddenly you, you sort of "Oh yeah trees are like these organs, and you're in you're in this living body, and like your gut bacteria are to you, so are you to the body of the earth and those ideas are great but but you only you know your experience of this reality is always in your body looking out, your skin kind of creates this boundary where it's like yeah I'm." I'm definitely inside, and then there's the world outside, and so it's like me here. But then, and this and this is where that flip comes in that maybe relates to the the little meditation we were doing earlier is that um, seen a certain way, you're much more like a river, uh, and there's this constant flow in and flow out, and and that can be um, it sort of changes this. In fact, that river can be seen as the relationship, so it's this exchange through breath, nutrient cycles um, water that that's sort of threading everything into these relationships and I think seeing seeing the world that way it sort of extends this idea of personal health to the health of a stream and the health of a forest because you suddenly start to see that what 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 is outside you is flowing into you so the separation isn't there just purely from the idea of like following the molecule soup that we're all immersed in um so yeah something like that
0: (laughs) you spoke about mystical experience and uh mystical experience in all traditions opens one up to mystery you know where the the boundlessness of the, the individual self merges in something much greater, and fungi are quite mysterious, um, and it seems like there's an immense amount we don't know, and that's very, very exciting, and uh, maybe perhaps also unnerving, especially for the traditional scientific establishment. Um, but in many cases, the more we learn, the less that makes sense about them. Um, <laughs> And there's so much complexity there, and in many ways, fungi sit outside the current parameters of what is knowable to us. And Merlin, you've written about trying to enjoy the ambiguities that fungi present. Um, That is not easy um, or comfortable because the space opens a lot of questions. Um, And actually, I wonder, Barney, if you could first respond to this, because I feel like that's part of your creative process, and it's on display upstairs, you know, stepping into mystery. Yes, you're making the the invisible visible and, and revealing the processes that are unfolding, photosynthesis, the way that oxygen, you know, and, and your moves and your breath can share the breath of the force, but there's also a lot of mystery there and the desire to invite people into that space of mystery.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest mysteries and um, is death and and part of our interest in um the mycelial world and um and and what happens after death in fact this would be another sort of meditation if you imagine you were to lie down on the forest floor and um and you're looking up at a tree and you you take your last breath and so in in that moment um you sort of drift into a slight out-of-body experience of um, where time starts to accelerate, so the the day-night cycle woo, woo, it starts to accelerate woo, 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 until like that the, the, the day-night is shimmering like this, like a, almost like when a, a car wheel is filmed and it stops going forward and it sort of hovers in this sort of tree time. You sort of enter tree time, and then um, and then you have a train spotting moment where you're like you're sinking down but as you as you rise down you've got sort of mushrooms flowering through your chest and all, all those branching networks that before were your cardiovascular system nervous system they start to beat to a different rhythm as they sort of pulsate <laughs> through blooms of bacteria and you a bit like a bath bomb you kind of spread out <laughs> and sink down and then you, but then but then you realize that actually death becomes life that you're weaving into new relationships and that that separation between the two it's never, like, the hard edge of, like, lights out. That Actually, you're you're blooming full of... You get eaten from the inside out. It's, like, part of your bacteria flows. And I think that's sort of... Um, there's a lot of celebration in that, but it's also addressing the sort of... There's a fear, a big fear fear element to it. But um, in some ways, maybe it's this idea that the bath bong moment is this thinking that you're a wave, like that you've got a structure and you're on the surface of things, and everyone else is, you know, a wave on the the surface of things. But then as you break down and flow out, you realise that you're part of the ocean, that kind of classic metaphor, which is often a spiritual thing. I think it also relates to this sort of, the way life is woven into, death is woven into life. So maybe that's a... I want to make that experience, by the way, if anyone's got a checkbook. (laughs) book. (laughs) (laughs)
2: funny. <laughs> 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 um, so the word mystery comes from the Greek word main, which means closed or shut. And, and mysteries are, in principle, those things which are unknowable, which remain concealed, which remain hidden, um, perhaps apart from in uh, rare moments uh, when one can experience them um, um So this sense of being hidden, uh, uh, of being obscured, Um, I do think this is really relevant to fungal life because most fungi live most of their lives immersed in whatever they happen to be eating. Lived as a mycelial network, your your life is about putting your body inside your food. We tend to do it the other way around, but um, fungi live their lives burrowing, insinuating um, themselves into their their food and then digesting it from the inside. So... um, and that means that you're inside whatever you happen to be eating. So from our perspective as humans, it's quite difficult. Um, apart from in moments when fungi erupt into our, uh, our sensory worlds, usually in the form of mushrooms, it's quite difficult for, actually, uh, for us to see what they're doing or to pay attention to them. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why we know relatively little about fungal life. Um, because I mean they were thought to be plants until the late 60s when they won their independence and became a new kingdom. <laughs> um, it took a while. And, um, and so, uh, but I think one of the reasons why that was is because they they, they remain I and mean, they remain difficult to study today. I spend time with my colleagues uh, in, in the research teams that, that, that I work with and we, uh, we're spending a lot of our time trying to make fungal life visible. So we have imaging robots which are looking at the flows within mycorrhizal networks in the lab and we go into the lab, we're looking at these videos of like flows going both directions at once, like changing direction, going around, like the most complex traffic system we can imagine. And all of us just saying, play it again, and then just like, our heads in our hands, like how are we ever gonna, ever gonna explain and understand this, but it's just so mesmerizing. Um, and let's let's get more of these images and have a bigger imaging robot so we can see more and make more visible and and, and and so much of our life is doing that. And how do we then make visible the life of fungi in the soil outside in a forest? And it's just so hard to do that. And um and even with the you know even if we had fifty million dollars, uh, we'd have to invent a lot of technology to make imaging techniques that would work there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're we're working towards this now, and it's a big part of our our, our, our challenge. Um. So even then it's difficult to see what fungi are up to, to really understand what they're doing in biologically meaningful environments outside of the lab. Um, and so this sense of you know, living obscured in the mystery uh, in this in, the, in this etymological sense, um, the Mayen, the closed or shut or, or concealed, uh, feels very close to, to, to fungal life. That being said, um, I think that um, I think that we could there's a lot to be some, with some mysteries, you don't necessarily want to try and drill through that wall into the concealed space behind them. That's not always, um, at least for me, the way that I want to conduct myself towards mysteries. But I do think there's a lot that we can learn from moving towards fungal life. And in that sense, um, maybe it's not an actual mystery, but it just presents as a mystery because it's concealed in this, uh, concealed in this way. But I do feel like um, understanding fungal life is an important part of uh, the modern biological sciences, because so much of the living world depends on them. And uh, our understanding of the living world is fundamentally incomplete um, until we start factoring them and the many other organisms that live in the soil into the picture. So I feel like um, that they sort of maybe present as a mystery, but um, might not be a, I think there are mysterious aspects to all of life, but, but maybe they're not a, like a true, like impenetrable mystery. We just haven't quite um, worked out how to to see far enough yet. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think the role of mystery is in cultivating awe and wonder, kind of going back to the first question I, I raised and kind of trying to break down some of these barriers between the scientific and artistic realms? Uh, what are your
2: thoughts? I mean, for me, m- the sense of wonder and curiosity and, um, and being mystified uh, 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 and the mystery is, is what motivates me to do, Anything it motivates me to live, you know, like, let alone ask scientific questions um, or philosophical questions. So, um, I find that those experiences are hugely important. And um, if I'm feeling closed or um, or um, detached or um, exhausted or or sick in some way, it's often because I've forgotten um, about. All of the you know, wondrous things that confuse me and mystify me, and, and a dose of those things can help me um, to get back on track, so I find it medicinal to to, to meet um, to meet mystery and wonder and curiosity and um and that uh, close mindedness is 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 well antidoted by that in my case um, so um, th- and that being said, you know, the mysteries i think mysteries draw us towards them um I certainly find the questions I, I like questions that are difficult to answer because they draw me into curiosity, they draw me forwards, they lure me forwards into inquiry. whereas if I answer the question really quickly or someone else answers the question for me, then that's it. the question's dead. you know an answered question is no longer a question really. Um, and so the unanswered questions I find have this very this very powerful lure luring effects and I feel without that luring um, then lots of things will become quite difficult
0: I mean upstairs and breathing with the forest it feels like you're being lured somewhere I mean versus trying to answer a question Do you say that's true Barney?
1: Yeah I think it's like scientists like Merlin think of them like slugs they leave this glittery trail behind them and I'm kind of there like <laughs> just like yumming <laughs> yumming the glitter juice Not necessarily asking the questions, but but, you know, letting somebody else do the hard work and just enjoying what comes out. Um, I think one of the ones that really got me was Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about, um, we did a project about time and um, thinking about time as elastic and we were looking at black holes and and he was talking about how um, stellar black holes, so they're the ones made by stars big enough and heavy enough to leave behind a black hole when they go supernova. It's it's only the ones that leave behind a black hole that are heavy enough to create all the ingredients for life. And I just love that the poetry of that, like this life and death, the kind of the void in relationship to all the ingredients necessary for us to be here. So you couldn't invent that. And then but they've measured, they've got they they've measured it and, and it's sort of it's there as a as a thing. So I think it's those kind of um scientific stories that I find um just they're kind of off the chart aren't they you just could you can't make that stuff up and and so it's it's everywhere really yeah
0: well you're speaking about death as a entry point for life and I want to ask you both about life forms as processes because that's present in both of your work and Merlin you've explored this in your writing and obviously mlf brought this at the fore in a lot of your installations the concept of life forms being processes rather than things instead of living beings being kind of a static fully formed matter they are systems through which matter passes through and in the case of fungi the mycelial networks are a map of their recent history uh, as you have written merlin I wonder if you could both speak to this and the importance of revealing these processes, whether that through science, art, writing,
2: what have you. Mm-hmm. I think this is such an important question. And I actually brought to mind a line from uh, one of the great process thinkers um, of recent times, Alfred North Whitehead. Um, and uh, a line of his just came to me just as Varney Ab- was speaking. And um, it was Whitehead said that philosophy begins in wonder and when philosophy's job is done, the wonder should remain. And I like this idea a lot because it feels like, uh, it feels like to me a, a good hallmark of a healthy inquiry that at the end of it, uh, the wonder that motivated the inquiry is at least as much uh, as was there um, at the start. So, um, but Whitehead Whitehead was a, a, a powerful, um, uh, influential process thinker. Um, and, and what this means is that Um, and there have been lots of process thinkers uh, for for a long time. Um, And why this is an important thing to talk about is because a lot of the way that the modern sciences invite us to understand the world and the modern philosophies um, is in terms of substances. So if you take... um, The nature of reality is is made of substances. So you take yourself what you're made of, you're made of uh, molecules, uh, molecules are made of atoms, and atoms are somehow a little... Um, billiard balls of stuff. Matter is uh, stuff, a substance that is fixed and unchanging somehow until it is changed. Um, And that's all very well. Um, uh, But the problem is that the nature of reality doesn't seem to be very much like that, really. When you boil it down, an atom is more like uh, energy bound within fields. It's much more like a process and a thing. But this matters, because if you're a thing person, um, and I think we're all a bit thing people, um, and a bit process people, so I think it's an ancient dialectic. Um, but if from a thing perspective, um, what you have to explain is why things change, because left to everything's own devices, it will just stay the same, because it's a thing, it's a substance, it's sort of unchanging. So you have to explain why things change, because things won't change unless they're changed. Uh, whereas if you're a process person, you boil it all down and you have unending flux, continual unending flux, then your question is, why does anything ever remain stable? How do we account for stability in the universe? And that's a very different question to how do we account for change in the universe? Uh, and I think both are important questions uh, and both perspectives can lead us to very healthy places. Uh, and I think it comes down to an ancient dialectic because you find this in many... Um, in many theological schemas from around the world one of my favorites is that of shiva um, the creator and the destroyer the the, um, the deity of powerful flux and vishnu the preserver um, this is within it within hindi philosophies and theologies uh, and you need the creation the destruction um, to generate a novelty and possibility but without any preservation then um, there could be no stability, no form, uh, and none of the things that uh, that we see as things. Um, So I think this dance between process and substance is very ancient. I feel like the substance view has received perhaps more than its fair share of emphasis within the modern sciences, and that's why the process view can be really, um, I think, lead us back into uh, uh, very important questions.
1: Mm. I totally forgot what the question was. <laughs> Could you give me a reminder? I was
0: lost in the... Uh... The importance of emphasising on revealing processes versus things, I guess, mm. is the, the simple way to, to answer that. Okay. Yeah, well, I think
1: we did this project a while ago um, called In the Eyes of the Animal. And um, and so that was um, based in Grisdale Forest. There's a sculpture park up there, and we did a LIDAR scan of a section of the forest... And then from that, we worked with a number of different scientists to explore what would the world look like through the eyes of a midge, a dragonfly, a frog and an owl. And, um, and that, that process of sort of trying to understand how another organism might see the world, you very quickly run up against, um, in fact, it's, there's a famous essay by Thomas Nagel saying, what's it like to be a bat? And you can, it's, it's impossible to really know for sure but I think science can tell us a certain amount and that can give us a bit of information about how we might uh, flavor your human senses through the lens of a dragonfly, for example. So uh, they've done some tests where they figured out if human perception is sort of between 25, You know, if you're watching a film at 25 frames a second, it's smooth. So you could say that if we're talking film frame rates, that's a human frame rate of reality. Whereas for a dragonfly it sees the world at three hundred frames a second, so it's got that that would be a very boring film. It'd be like Grandad's slideshow at, at Christmas <laughs> the lampposts i don't know if you yeah the lamppost slideshow so there's there's this kind of um when you start to step out of the human flavored reality and explore these other spectrums, you realize that um th- that everything is kind of existing in relationship to everything else in its own. Um, sensory kind of dialogue that that a, a plant has got certain colour spectrums within it that are only available to the pollinator, and although we get a reflection of that beauty through the scent, it's actually it's a dialogue that's 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 not designed for the human being. It's a dialogue between a moth or a bat and a certain flower, and some of those those sort of uh, relationships go have uh, sort of shimmered in relationship over deep time, you know, really entangled. So although we can appreciate I guess the the beauty of the world through the human lens, I think when we start to shift and see it through the more than human lens, then it, it does create a an interesting those those experiences and stories can can stay with you and maybe maybe flavor the way you see the world afterwards.
0: Well, we've been talking around this, I guess the the entire conversation, but I, I'd love to ask it more directly to both of you, um, which is really. How might funky help us break through the traditional Western philosophical frameworks? You know, you spoke about the Hindu philosophical framework in your last uh, response, Merlin, and um, I think it's really important that we look beyond the Western philosophical framework at this time, whether that be to ancient cultures um, like the Hindu culture, but also traditional indigenous cultures that have held very different worldviews for millennia, more than we have. You know because how can we step outside of ourselves and and challenge these models and how can fungi be a gateway to that this is a a a very profound question um i'll try and
2: um i'll try and be brief Um, so i think we can learn many things from fungi that can help us in this quest Um, and some of those things might be um as we've already discussed the the fundamentally intermingled nature of the living world and the universe Uh, and if fungi can lead us to that place then i think we are um we are already stepping outside a number of um perhaps constraining philosophical systems that we inherit that i've inherited as a resident of a north atlantic country here um and um then the the thinking fungally you would think perhaps about um about cycles much more, because from a fungal perspective, there's no such thing as a waste. Everything created by every every kind of um, chemical or substance or product of any other life form is an opportunity for for, for growth. So, um, I think you enter a much more cyclical point of view um, from thinking with fungi through their um, various ways that they live, and I think that cyclical point of view is something you find enacted in many different um, traditions around the world. Um, I think you would also come to a place of, um, uh, of understanding that humans aren't the only way that intelligence manifests in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very important for overcoming a lot of our species, narcissism and exceptionalism. And I, I think that's something that you'd find, again, in many different parts of the world, in many different traditions. I think fungi can take us to that place because the ways they live make it clear that you don't need a brain to solve complex problems. I think that you could get to um, some very interesting place by thinking about about process, as we've discussed. That a mycelial network is a body without a body plan. There's no sense in which this network could ever be fully grown like we could. Um, And so you might end up in a more processual space, which again might be something you'd find more um, present in traditional systems around the world. And then Back to this mystery point. I think fungi teaches about the power of what lies beneath, what lies hidden from us. And um, a lot of what we might call Western scientific and philosophical traditions come from the Enlightenment. And this was very much about shining the light on things, revealing things. Um, And this metaphor of light and seeing is is very powerful uh, in this whole diaspora of thinking. And so... um, For me, fungi, in reminding us of the power of what lies hidden, of what lies um, beneath, what we can't see, Mm. all of the subvisible realms, all of these organisms that create the atmosphere in which we live, that have um, shaped everything we know about, the living world, um, I think fungi take me to that place as well. I think that sense, that intuition, that there are some things that uh, we can't know by shining light on them. There are things that we just... Um, are always going to be that mystery place, the mind, the closed, the shut, the hidden. I think fungi can take us to that place too, and I think that's something you'd find in many of these traditions around the world also. Mm. Mm.
1: As, you, as you were talking, it was making me think about this um, idea of the limits of our perception. And so, um, you know, we I've got a great relationship. My, my dad, my dad of here, I've got some dear friends and my dog. And so the... the The living organisms that I encounter on a daily basis, I'm woven into relationship with them. But obviously we live in this strange time where you can reach for a can of tuna, but then that extends through a supermarket into a fishing boat that's reaching into um, an experience for that tuna that is so detached from me in the shining light of the supermarket. And I often think about the, um, you know, in a culture that's global, where that, that mycelial web of... How your actions extend into relationships that you you're so distanced from. I think it's it's interesting um, to think about. Well, we're we're thinking with the work that we're making about how you can bring that geography of the the tuna looking in the eye, but the the, the magnificence of that organism into direct you know into direct contact with with you as you're sort of reaching for the tuna. That there's the ability through the technology to maybe peer past the smoke screen of advertising to reestablish those relationships. Because one thing for sure is that, you know, if you were to experience certain things like deforesting through eating chocolate spread, it's a horrific idea. You're like, what? So I think there's, in some ways, this idea of direct relationship to, you know, this expanded planet is is something that maybe um, inspired me through what you were saying.
0: Merlin, you spoke about uh, intelligence and, um, you know, for a long time now, human intelligence has been the yardstick by how we gauge a level of what is intelligent or not. Uh, and I feel very strongly that part of what needs to shift through this entanglement that has been, again, revealed to us through the ecological disaster that's unfolding, um, pushes us to, to reconsider that again right, Uh, that human beings aren't necessarily the most intelligent forms of life out there. Fungal networks are incredibly intelligent. Uh, Slime molds, uh, there are many forms of intelligence out there. Uh, But it seems like the, the fungal world, the mycelial world has captivated people in a way that other forms haven't, you know, and from from Suzanne Samard's paper in the late 90s to now the Wood Wide Web has become a term many people know and understand and are captivated by. And it seems like there's a doorway there, and a doorway maybe perhaps is growing as we become more and more aware that there are other forms of intelligence out there to reconsider ourselves in a very, very different way. So I wonder if you could speak to that. As you say, yeah, the... the
2: the traditional definitions of intelligence within the modern sciences come from a version of cognitive science, which placed the human at the center of the inquiry. And of course, um, it would start there. That makes sense. And um, so many of the traditional definitions of, or measures of intelligence, like being able to recognize oneself in a mirror, um, being able to solve certain kinds of problem, um, they were shaped around our understanding of our intelligence, um, which again, it makes sense if you're assessing Human-like intelligence, um, but the problem is when that becomes the uh, the ultimate definition of intelligence. Then, uh, then the, we we do, I think, some bad manners, uh, and we disservice the many other organisms that we share the planet with. Um, because by trying to fit them into our categories, uh, when they fail to fit into our categories um, that we have made for them to fit into, uh, we dismiss them somehow as being less intelligent. So this is the problem. Um, but thankfully, these definitions of intelligence have started to change in, in recent years. And this is coming from a number of different fronts, from, from aspects of philosophical inquiry, from, uh, from computing, um, when artificial intelligence, uh, through various areas in the biological sciences. And it, it now becomes clear, I mean, you can define intelligence however you like, right? And, um, but the ways that I, that I find this is happening in, in, in um, generative uh, ways is that... Um, Now, intelligence, you might think about it more as uh, not as something that an organism has or doesn't have, i.e. is this intelligent or not, but rather uh, as different sets of behaviours, like the ability to solve problems, different kinds of problem, uh, the ability to um, choose between different courses of action, the ability to adapt to a changing uh, circumstance, to changing environments. And when you look at it like this, it becomes clear that, that all organisms, to some degree, Are intelligent because the challenges of living um, present one with problems that you have to solve, and organisms have evolved to solve different kinds of problems. One of the reasons why organisms are different from each other is because they've evolved to solve different kinds of problems. So the problems that we can solve um, when we've evolved to solve are different kinds of problems than those that um, that befuddle a plant. Um, And the plants evolve to solve those different kinds of problems. So that's that's I find um, quite helpful because. Uh, once we 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 make intelligence less of a special thing, it actually becomes just a very fundamental part uh, of, of of existing, um, and we also destabilize one of the things that we think of as making making us so special. Um, but I just think it makes it more fun. Um, the the living world becomes a more exciting place to live because. Um, as a place that we're all living with other organisms all improvising through time really improvising um, just within a set of constraints that we inherit through the the quirks of our evolution and the nature of our bodies and senses Um, but all facing possibilities and E. coli bacterium faces possibilities Um, and within those possibilities within that possibility space there is opportunity for choice it can it can use its flagellum to propel itself in a certain way or it can stop Um, and it has other degrees of freedom so Improvisation, I think, of as just a tension between one's constraints, one's possibilities, and the degrees of freedom one has to act in that space. Um, and I think all organisms are, in their way, improvising through time, and lineages are improvising through, e- e- um, through evolutionary time. And, um, and so this is, yeah, something that I think is um, a... Oh, rats, I've forgotten the question. I was improvising. <laughs> I forgot the question. Jazzing.
0: I think at this point, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I want to come back to <laughs> intelligence,
2: want, intelligence. Intelligence. Okay, intelligence. Okay, okay. There was this thing. So the possibility space there was getting the better of me, and I forgot the constraint uh, of the question. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but the point is that the... Um, uh, yeah, so, so, so the deepened and expanded understandings of intelligence changed the way that we think about both ourselves um, and the ways that we relate um, to the world. And, uh, and I think... Um, it's, it's an important thing to have, have destabilized and made more porous and, and flexible.
1: I was thinking about a uh, Richard Powers quote, I'll probably get it slightly wrong, but he talks about that this is a world of trees where humans have just arrived. And so, so like, I think there's a, a fundamental shift in like, do you feel that you grow out of this earth, part of this unfolding process of deep time where you're inseparable from the relationships. Everything about your senses has, has co-evolved in relationship to the living world. So you're not this thing that's separate, observing it. You're, you're part of that fruit. And I think, actually, Alan Watts, I love Alan Watts, but he's, he's, got a, he's got a real peach where he talks about this idea as apples on an apple tree, and so, the idea of being an apple on a tree and not realizing that that the tree is alive, that you're paying attention to the other apples, they're coming and going, they fall off, they're living and dying, but you don't recognize that the tree is alive. And that's like us not understanding that the earth is a living being and that that we grow out of it. I I think if you see the world that way, how could you ever not imagine that there's intelligence embedded into the tree, into the whole thing, into the whole living being? So I think that's the way... That definitely makes sense to me anyway.
0: (laughs) So I want to end the conversation um, by talking about survival and adaptability. Um, Merlin, you write that fungi are veteran survivors of ecological disruption, and they have a remarkable ability to adapt to fragmenting environments and landscapes experiencing catastrophic change. And not only do they survive through such conditions, they often flourish in part because they are inventive, flexible, collaborative. How could a deepening of a relationship, a partnership with the fungal community, from from us towards them, help us adapt to the ecological crisis we are now in? And, and, you know, what can we learn from them that's really so relevant right now?
2: I think so many things. And um, I think one of the the ways that led me to... to, um, Lichens, uh, I'll talk a bit about lichens because I think this, is, this helps to illuminate your question. Um, lichens are um, symbiotic organisms. They're made up of fungi and algae and bacteria and any number of different kinds of combination. And you'll have seen them around. They encrust graveyards, they live on roofs, fence posts, on, on uh, rocks, on seashores. Um, they live on some of the most inhospitable places on the planet. When a, new, uh, when a volcano throws up a new island in the Pacific Ocean, Um, This rock, a newly formed rock. The first things to live on this rock are lichens that arrive when they're traveling by by sea or by birds. And these lichens can, because of their togetherness, because together they make a kind of planet. The fungus can do things and the algae can eat light and photosynthesis. Uh, The fungus can eat the rock. Um, The bacteria do all sorts of other important things. Um, But because they're together, they can live in this place that none um, none of them could live there alone. Um, And in fact, they would look completely different alone. They wouldn't make this elaborate, colourful form producing these wildly strange chemicals that only exist in this lichen lineage. Sunscreens, antimicrobials, crazy things are produced by lichens out of their togetherness. So together, they can do something they couldn't do alone. And this is really a a kind of maxim in the story of life. This is um, so many moments in the story of life. How organisms come together um, in a way that creates new possibilities. enlarges their possibility space Um, and so um, and a lot of these these relationships these symbiotic relationships have gone on to change the planet and and the conditions for life Um, many of these relationships have formed at times of crisis and crisis is a crucible for new relationships and so in thinking about the ways that fungi have um have persisted through these five great extinction events. Of course, not all fungi persisted through that time. Lots of fungi would have been eradicated in in these moments of cataclysmic um, change. Um, But many could survive somehow. And many of the ways that they they survived was striking up new relationships. Um, So when we're thinking about this time of crisis that we find ourselves in, I think there are... Um, one of the things you might learn from fungi, but of course, we'd also be learning it from the rest of the living world because fungi aren't the only organisms to do this. But is that to adapt and to move through this mess, um, we will need to form new types of relationship with non-human, more than human organisms, but also with humans um, and across human ages, cultures, um, different points of view, or disciplines, or all of this. I think so much of the challenge of our times is about forming new relationships and thinking as lichens. To so think about lichens as a principle rather than just an organism. To think of lichens as showing us something fundamental about how life proceeds and, 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 and lichenize ourselves uh, in new ways um, or maybe in old ways that we've forgotten about. So this is one way that I understand um, the... the the ways that fungi have persisted to 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 inform the ways we might think about moving forward. So our relationships with fungi might look like um, uh, remembering our long history with fungi in fermentation, um, making alcohol and foodstuffs, um, recruiting them for metabolic purposes. We might um, work with them to develop the field of mycoremediation to try and think of the waste products that we generate as opportunities for fungi to do their Um, metabolic uh, wizardry. We might think about all the ways that we've depended on fungi for drugs in the past, um, for chemicals that changed the way our bodies and our minds work. We might think about moving forwards into a a more profound exploration of of the chemical ingenuity of fungi and and how they might um, produce compounds that we need or those organisms we depend on might need. We might think about Um, How when we grow plants, we are always growing fungal relationships because all all plants depend on fungi. So how can we become more mycologically literate in our forestry, in our agriculture? Um, We might think about um, how we build things. Are there ways that we can change the way we we make materials? Um, Can we um, work with fungi to build things, myco-fabricate things? Um, Can we use the powers of those materials to disrupt polluting industries? So these are some of the ways that we might partner with fungi moving forwards, but each one of them has a longer route into tradition and, and, and going back into the past. So I think each one of them, if we see them as part of an ongoing inquiry that humans around the world have already started uh, making and that we just need to grow them forwards like a, a fungal cell would grow, um, then I think it would be a more exciting story than if we pretend that we're just inventing these new methods or we're deepening, expanding them and exploring them. Um, but many of them have uh, very, very long roots and, and we can trust those.
1: So stories flavour our reality. They're like the operating system through which we interpret the world. And um, and when the dominant narrative is uh, one of separation then there's a certain way of being that, that sort of allows you to act in a certain way where you, you look after number one and your family and those dearest to you. And I think this... Um, a lot of the stories that Merlin's talking about here are stories of symbiosis and inter-existence and interbeing, and so I'm really interested in how um, how you address this sort of myth of separation through an experience of interbeing, especially when a lot of our experiences as humans puts us, like we were saying before, inside our skin looking out. I think you, you could argue that. It feels like I'm separate more than it does part of, of the greater whole. You know, what's the experience of being mycelium? It's like how far, given that people can drive um, or captain these huge oil tankers and they can get around corners without hitting stuff, how far can you expand the boundary of your being? You know, can you embody a forest? One of the things we found um, really interesting, actually there were two things. One is that when you smell the smell of a pine forest, in an office, you think of toilet cleaner. But when you're in virtual reality seeing a forest, you smell exactly the same thing. You're like, oh, I'm so in the forest here. It just puts you there. And there's these, there's these tricks where you can, um, so for example, you could be embodying a mycelial web in a forest and a, a branch lands that you want to consume. And so if you imagine yourself as sort of expanded, maybe, maybe the forest is sitting on your chest like the surface of your skin. And so all you need to do is have a, a visual cue with a sensation of maybe a little gust of wind on your leg hair, maybe that's where it happens, with a sonic cue as well. But then you could also just be like, oh, I'm gonna go over there and see so, and there's activity happening there. So this this idea of sort of extending your body and expanding perception, I think that that's our sweet spot. That's what we're engaged in. And it's it's these wonderful stories that when translated to experiences could flavor the way you You act and 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 the way you behave in the world.
0: Thank you, Barney. Thank you, Merlin, for this lovely conversation. Um, real privilege to to share space with you. Original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by Logan Stanley and H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Erica Nininger and produced by Shauna Quinn and Emmanuel Vaughn-Lee with writing by Lucy Wormald. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.